For those of you who are new with us today, we're uh, in the fourth message today in a series we've titled Turning the World Upside Down on the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, so you're early in the game. You can see all of our messages at uh, mylpcoli.com. Follow the, the prompts there. Uh, today we're in Acts 2, verses 1 through 41, which is the description of the day of Pentecost. I wonder if any of you know what today is. Anybody? Halloween, we've got Halloween, trunk or treat. What else? Reformation Day. That's right. Today's the uh, 504th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, triggering a theological and ecclesiastical earthquake, uh, maybe better described as rolling thunder, that we now remember as the Protestant Reformation. So uh, whether you're a pagan or a Christian today, there's something to celebrate on the 31st of October. In our uh, immediate and extended families, Marcy's and mine, these, these fall months are pretty busy months. Um, there is a succession of 11 birthdays that begins the 1st of October and ends the 31st of December. And then you add into that Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas and our wedding anniversary, and it's no wonder that by the time New Year's Day rolls around, we're sleeping during the football games. So uh, exciting times. And, you know, for me, reading through these first chapters of the book of Acts uh, produces a similar feeling, although one that, that runs perhaps much deeper, uh, much less exhausting, much more exciting. There is a nearly dizzying array of uh, significant moments, significant events occurring in sl- close sequence uh, within a very short period of time. Uh, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, Matthias taking the place of Judas Iscariot among the twelve, the outpouring of the Spirit uh, on the church on the day of Pentecost, and then the development of a devoted communal lifestyle among the believers in that first church in Jerusalem, uh, the preaching of the gospel by the apostles accompanied by miracles and signs and wonders and and uh, almost immediate opposition and persecution, and on it goes. These are exciting pages of the Bible, exciting chapters, exciting stories, and they're all true. Well, this morning, I'd, I'd like you to think with me for a little while about the significance of what took place among the disciples in the city of Jerusalem on the very first feast of Pentecost, following Jesus' ascension to the throne of heaven. It seems somewhat coincidental that we would consider Pentecost on Reformation Sunday because all of the five battle cries, if you will, or the emphases of the Reformation are represented in some way in Acts 2. Those five emphases in, of the Reformation were in Latin first sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone, uh, as opposed to the the, uh, the tradition of the ter- church, the teachings of the popes. Uh, second, sola fide, or faith alone, um, versus merit, uh, earning our salvation. Third, sola gratia, or grace alone, the means by which we are able to enter into a relationship with God. Fourth, sola Christus, or Christ alone, And fifth, soli deo gloria, or glory to God alone. In the narrative of the day of Pentecost, we see the the supreme authority, the utter trustworthiness of Scripture uh, being demonstrated as prophecies of Scripture are clearly fulfilled. And we hear a gospel proclaimed that promises salvation by the grace of God alone, through personal faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God of God alone. We could spend a great deal of time providing background because uh, there is much in the Old Testament that is background to the text that we'll consider today. But by way of brevity, you may recall that Jesus, in the upper room with his disciples, announced to them that he was going away. 
which created a great deal of sorrow in them. But he promised them that he would not leave them alone, that he would send the Holy Spirit to them. And while I'd encourage you to read the entirety of chapters 14 and 16 of John's Gospel for Jesus' full teaching on the promise of the Holy Spirit, you'll be relieved that I'm not going to read those to you. Um, But allow me to point out just one verse in particular, which is John 16 and verse 7. And there Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And as I mentioned in an earlier message, the essential advantage to them and to us today is that the Holy Spirit universalizes to us the presence of Jesus. He is God in the flesh, and as such, his presence was localized, meaning where he was, that's that's the only place he was. But God the Holy Spirit can be in all places, in all of his people, and with, with all of his people, all of the time, anywhere they are. You will recall that in Acts 1, 3 to 5, after his resurrection, Jesus was with his disciples for a period of 40 days for the express purpose of encouraging them, of instructing them, and fully persuading them that he was now fully alive. It was during those 40 days that he also gave the command that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but rather that they should wait in the city until they received the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, which was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus described in two ways what that experience would be for them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Luke records that Jesus said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that word baptized was, in those times, an everyday word. If you washed your clothes, you submerged them in water, you were baptizing them. If you were cleaning the vegetables before dinner in the sink and you you immersed them in water, you were baptizing them. Uh, Sense was that anything or anyone who was baptized would get wet and uh, fully saturated so would be their experience with the Holy Spirit. Uh, They wouldn't get a light Pacific Northwest drizzle. Instead, they were going to get a full flood that would drench them through and through with the Spirit of God. The language of baptism is also the language of initiation, of beginnings. It's the language of incorporation, of inclusion, and within Christ and within the body of Christ, the church. In Luke 24, verse 49, Luke records that Jesus described it another way as well. In this case, not in terms of a baptism, but in terms of being clothed. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's a great mental visual, isn't it? The root word for clothed here is enduo. It's the word from which we get our word endow or endowment. And it means basically to kind of sink into a garment, to put on a garment, but it, but it has the larger connotation also of being equipped, of being gifted, of being prepared, and in this case, with divine power. Jesus reiterated that in Acts 1, verse 8, when he said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here we understand the purpose of the endowment, don't we, of the clothing, of the empowerment. Uh, it It was and is today to invest Jesus' disciples with divine power. Uh, that, that we need in order to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in all the places that he would send us. So in the day of Pentecost, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that, that he would send the Holy Spirit who would be with them and in them 
And in turn, we see the inauguration of the mission of the church in the world in this new era of the Spirit, whose primary role is to glorify God the Son, Jesus Christ, and to make him known. So in the day of Pentecost, we we see also the birthday of the church and uh, the, the excitement of that brand new beginning, a brand new chapter, a whole new adventure or a whole new set of adventures that continues to this day and beyond. Now, having said all of that, let's dive into our text today. And I, I'm not going to have you stand and read today because this is a long passage. I'm going to break it up into six sections and just read them to you as we go. So for those of you who are taking notes, uh, we're looking now at the miracle on Pentecost in verses 1 through 13. The miracle on Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Well, let's begin where Luke begins here, which is when this happened and where. The word Pentecost is actually a a numerical term. It's a numerical expression. It, It literally means 50th. Not 49th, not 51st, but 50th. Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Weeks, and it took place 50 days to the day after Passover. In Leviticus 23.16, the Israelites were commanded, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord, 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, uh, seventh Sabbath after Pentecost, or after Passover, rather, 10 days since Jesus had ascended, and the disciples were all together in a house, probably in a high traffic area, obviously not meaning vehicle traffic, but uh, foot traffic for sure, uh, cart traffic perhaps and probably somewhere close to the temple. And as they were gathered, there they experienced three supernatural phenomena. First, they heard a sound like the blowing of a mighty rushing wind. Second, fire appeared, what what appeared to be fire appeared in, in the room, separated into tongues that came to rest on the, the heads of each of the disciples. Think now about tongues of fire. And in that moment, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke says that they began third then to speak in other tongues. Let's look briefly at each of them. First, a sound like the rushing of a mighty wind. That word mighty um, in the Greek language in which this was written can also be translated violent, a mighty violent wind. If you've ever um, been in a hurricane or been close to a tornado or even a storm with high winds, you may, you may have some idea of the sound that they heard. It wasn't a light breeze, but a violent rushing wind. So we have to ask ourselves, why might God have accompanied the sending of his spirit with the sound of a rushing 
violent wind. And there are many places in the Bible in which the, the presence of an activity of God is presented by wind. The very first we see is in Genesis 2, where Jesus scoops up some dirt from the ground, out of that forms a man and <sighs> breathes into him the breath of life, and he becomes a living being. Uh, another is in Ezekiel 37, where the Ruach Adonai, the breath or the wind of God, is present. Uh, as you see on your screen, the, the, both the Hebrew and the Greek words for wind or breath or spirit um, are, are, are synonyms. Um, that Hebrew word, ruach, is an onomatopoeia, if you remember from your English classes, a, a word that sounds like what it means. And so if you can just think ruach, that, there's that the ruach. I couldn't think of a way to do this without sounding silly. But there it is. Cool word. You're going to be doing this all day now when, when no one's listening. Ezekiel 37 is another place where the Ruach Adonai, the breath or wind of God, is present. God takes the prophet. If you know this story, God takes the prophet Ezekiel to a a valley that's filled with dry, brittle skeletons. And he asks Ezekiel, "Can, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, for God, only you know. Only you know. And so God adds um, muscle and sinew, flesh to these bones. He brings them together, and and uh, and but still they're just lying there. They they don't live. And so God asks Ezekiel again, "Can these bones live? Can they can they rise up?" And again Ezekiel says a similar thing. And so God commands the four winds to come, and he he breathes life into them. And as a result, they they stand up. And and they're a whole mighty army, it says. It's a vision, I think, of God restoring Israel and, and putting his spirit within them as they discover who Messiah really is, put their faith in him. In both of those cases, wind is a symbol of life. It's a symbol of renewal. It's a symbol of regeneration. The wind of God is his life-giving spirit. Secondly, after the wind, Luke records that uh, what appeared to be fire, what appeared to be fire, came to rest on each of them. And the sense of the language is that the fire appeared first as one flame and then divided into individual tongues of fire so that they came to rest on each of the disciples, each and every one of them who were gathered in that room. The one Spirit of God being distributed individually to to each and every disciple. And it reminds us, doesn't it, of, of another time in the Bible where someone encountered fire that wasn't causing burns, wasn't consuming. And, uh, and that occasion is, of course, uh, the occasion of Moses' encounter with God in, in the burning bush. And his later encounter with God who had descended in fire on Mount Sinai, um, as it's recorded in Exodus 19. And we might think of John the Baptizer's, John the Baptizer's words in Matthew 3.11, that when Messiah came, he would baptize them with spirit and with fire. So both wind and fire taken together were symbols understood by the Israelites for the presence and the power and the purity of God. The disciples couldn't have orchestrated or staged this supernatural event. It is simply burst in upon them suddenly in a startling way. Under the new covenant established by Jesus and inaugurated at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit now rests on each of us, lives within us, so that the Spirit universalizes the presence of Jesus to every one of us right down to to today and to every future disciple until he comes again. 
Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, in, uh, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in Christ, he says, you have been given that same fullness. The third supernatural phenomenon is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as God enabled them. Now, I want you to know, um, you know I, I, I can just imagine even in a group this size, we've come from all over the denominational map. And what I want you to understand about what's happening here, and it's clear in the, in the Greek text, is that the other tongues that they spoke that day were neither gibberish, nor were they uh, some kind of heavenly or angelic language. These were languages known by those who heard the disciples speaking them, but they weren't previously known or learned by the speakers. Not surprisingly, the sound of a mighty wind followed by the sound of the disciples loudly praising God in all of these tongues captured the curiosity of a crowd. Luke tells us that they were devout Jews from every nation under heaven who were residing in Jerusalem. I made a new discovery this week in my studies, something I'd never noticed before. In the past, I'd always assumed that, that all of these people that Luke was describing from all over the Mediterranean region and beyond were were primarily pilgrims who had come up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And what I discovered I had overlooked is that the word translated dwelling in verse 5 actually indicates permanent residence. And of course, there may have been and probably were pilgrims among them who had come for the feast, but the primary implication is that Peter is addressing residents of Jerusalem, and this is consistent with the way he addresses them in verse 14, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, uh, but also consistent with some of the other things that he's going to say to them here. They were attracted by what they were hearing. They were completely bewildered because each one of them was hearing these backwater, backwoods, backwards uneducated Galilean disciples praising God in what happened to be their own native languages. Those of each of the regions listed in verses 9 to 11, languages that these unsophisticated hicks from the sticks clearly could not have learned on their own. And this fact is stated in verse 6. It's reiterated in verses 8 and 11. Well, why this? Why this? And again, we can look back in the Bible to a place like Genesis 11, to the Tower of Babel, uh, and be reminded that on that occasion, as the people were building a tower that presumed to reach up to God, that God came down and confused in, in their arrogance, in their pride, reaching up to, to God to be like God, to be equal with God. God came down and confused their language so that they no longer understood each other and were scattered across the earth. Babel, as it were, and if you'll allow me this thought, Babel had a centrifugal effect. That is, it just spun people outward all over the place. That instead of unifying, divided, But Pentecost has a centripetal effect that instead of dividing and scattering, unites and gathers people into one body, one new community. In his commentary on Acts, John Stott notes, and I just think this is a beautiful statement, nothing could have demonstrated more clearly than this, the multiracial, multinational, multilingual easy for me to say, multilingual nature of the kingdom of God. How important this was to laying the foundation for the mission of the church to be witnesses, first in Jerusalem and then in all of Judea and then Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth. As Jesus put it in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, to make disciples of all the nations, all the nations, 
And it points forward to the day when in the presence of God, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, will stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's a British pastor, his name is Roy Clements, that wrote a book titled The Church That Turned the World Upside Down. And in it, he he notes how important to people their culture is. Different movements, he wrote, have tried to create a single world order, but in doing so, they are implicitly imperialistic, involving the domination of one culture over another. Even with Islam, the unity that is forged is dominated by ancient Arab culture and language. But he goes on to say that the culture refuses to be dominated in that way. And he he asks, is there a power, is there a power that can unify the divided nations of the earth without subjugating them? Uniting without subjugating. Is there a way of making people one, without at the same time demanding that they all be made the same. In other words, is it possible to achieve unity without conformity? To which he answers, it is precisely that sort of unity which the Holy Spirit brings. And he declares his intention in the matter right at the beginning, on the day of Pentecost, by the miracles he performed. The Holy Spirit was going to break down social barriers and create an unprecedented kind of internationalism. Unlike the imperialisms of men, the Spirit had no ambition to homogenize the peoples of the world into a uniform Christian culture. And that's both very important for us to understand and I think delightful for us to understand. Because how cool is it when you're traveling in in international Uh, places to see um, Christianity expressed as Eastern Indian, to see international uh, Christianity expressed through the lens of, of African culture or Asian culture. Colorful, diverse, wonderful. The attention of the the God-fearing Jews whose attention had been captured by the signs they witnessed were amazed and asked, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I would just observe with you that miracles do not by themselves persuade. They have to be followed by the proclamation of the gospel. Miracles raise questions. The gospel answers them. And so we move to Peter's explanation in verses 14 to 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood." Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, something I notice right away is that Peter doesn't intend to provide a detailed teaching on Joel's prophecy. He doesn't take time to explain things like blood and fire and vapor of smoke, sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood. He's just pointing to Joel's prophecy and saying, This is that. This is that. He's telling them that what they're witnessing is the fulfillment of prophetic scripture that would have been familiar 
to them. And I don't think that Peter, by himself standing there, would have said that he completely understood what was going on either. But he understood the essence of it. He understood that God was doing what he promised he would do. He's pointing to Joel's prophecy, and he's uh, saying that by the Spirit, what the prophets said, which is what God said, or what God first said through the prophet. That is, the apostle is saying by the Spirit what the prophet said, which is what God first said through the prophet. And when we hear this message from the perspective of prophetic fulfillment, a whole bunch of what was unclear at the time those words were first spoken by the prophet becomes clear to us. Now, God said a similar thing through the prophet Jeremiah. Go with me to Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Peter, here in Jerusalem, is putting his emphasis entirely on what is understandable and on, ful on fulfillment of prophecy as the sign that, that the last days are now upon us, that the new covenant is now, in effect, having been ratified by the blood of Christ. And there in his use of the quotation from Joel, we can see two emphases. First, that God is pouring out the Spirit on all flesh, male, female, young, old, those of high social status, as well as those of low social status, those of high income, as well as those of low income. And he's extending the gift of salvation to all who call upon the name of the Lord. Verses 22 to 36, Peter gives testimony about Jesus. Beginning here in verse 22, Peter stands up again, this time with the other 11, now including Matthias, and, and, and delivers what is the first evangelistic sermon of the New Testament. In verse 22, Peter talks about his life and ministry, the life and ministry of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. As you yourselves know. He was here. You saw what he did. You understood fundamentally what it meant. His death, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to, notice now, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. One of the things that stood out to me as I was studying this this time around is Peter's repetition of the pronoun you. Uh, six times in two verses, verses 22 to 23, and then a seventh time in verse 36. When I was in high school, I was part of what we called the Boys Rooting Association. Uh, we weren't cheerleaders. We were uh, bleacher dwellers, wooden bleachers that made lots of noise. And, and our goal was to create general havoc at basketball games, uh, get under the skin of the players on the opposing team. And... Uh, and there were about 70 of us in the Boys Rooting Association. One of our tactics when an opposing player was called for a foul 
was to stand up and point our fingers, all 70 of us, all at once, point our fingers at that player and say, you, 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 you. Just to irritate him. Peter here wasn't trying to humiliate or irritate, I don't think. But he was clearly putting the emphasis where it needed to be. Peter attributed the death of Jesus simultaneously to the purposes of God and to the wickedness of men, specifically these Jews in Jerusalem who were there and shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Peter says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was no mistake. It was no accident. Think of it. Albert Muller wrote that God didn't send his son as an experiment or a test to see how his creatures in their sin and rebellion would respond to him, nor did God consider the crucifixion to be a mere possibility, one option among many. Jesus Christ is the spotless Lamb of God, and his Father sent him to earth to die. The God of the Bible is the one, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's not waiting to see how world history unfolds. History is his story. He's in sovereign control of all things. That fact does not, however, negate the responsibility of human beings. It doesn't, re- doesn't relieve us of our responsibility. Those, those who condemned Jesus to death remain personally culpable for and guilty of their own sin. In verses 24 to 32, Paul goes into the resurrection. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can see the tomb of David. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Verses 25 to 28 there are quoted from Psalm 16. 8 through 11, Messianic Psalm of David. Well, then in verses 33 to 36, his exaltation, which we considered together just recently, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let me just pause there and, and, and just make note that For the disciples, the promise of Jesus that he was going to the Father and that when he was there, he would pour out the Spirit, he would send the Spirit, had to have been in Peter's mind here. Peter is just saying, yeah, Jesus, I know now that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father for a fact because this is happening. This is happening. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you crucified. And there's that word you again. You. You crucified him. In verses 37 to 41, there's a call and a promise. 
And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, at the name in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice that witnessing the miracles, they were bewildered. They were wildly curious. But it was only at the preaching of the gospel that they were cut to the heart. The gospel, Paul wrote, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Their consciences were stricken. They were experiencing deep conviction of sin. Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter doesn't use the occasion to scold them anymore. He, he, he quickly lays out the prescription. He tells them first that they must repent. Well, what does that mean? In this case, it means at least this, that they needed a complete change of mind about Jesus, who he is, how they thought and felt about him. You remember that Isaiah in chapter 53 of his prophecy, speaking for all of Israel, said, We esteemed him smitten, stricken of God, and afflicted. We we thought that his persecution, his Suffering, his execution, were the just wrath of God being carried out against a heretic and a blasphemer. That's what we thought. And they now needed to embrace the truth that God had raised that Messiah, Jesus, from the dead, exalted him to his right hand, and made him, this one whom they had crucified, both Lord and Christ, And secondly, Peter tells them that they must be baptized in his name. The Jews regarded baptism as, uh, well, something that was necessarily only only for Gentiles converting to Judaism. For a Jew to be baptized would require them to humble themselves before God, humble themselves before others, submit to some measure of humiliation. It would mean submitting to baptism in the name of the one whom they had previously rejected and put to death. So The Bible never teaches that baptism by itself is necessary for salvation. For example, the, the poster child for that, obviously, is the thief on the cross next to Jesus who, who clearly wasn't baptized. But it was his faith in Jesus alone that resulted in his salvation. At the same time, parallel with that, the New Testament simply knows nothing of an unbaptized believer. Baptism is a necessary outward sign of repentance, obedience, discipleship. So we don't need to be baptized in order to receive salvation. But if we're truly saved, it's something we'll do because we want to, because Jesus commanded it, because we want to please him. It's not something we'll resist. I encounter people who call themselves Christians all the time who resist baptism. And I want to just say to all of you, if, if you're resisting baptism, it may be because you simply aren't saved. It may be simply because you aren't willing to humble yourself before the Lord and before others. It may be because you're not willing to be that publicly identified with Jesus. There's a reciprocal response to repentance and baptism here, which are two gifts that come from the heart and the hand of God. Forgiveness of sin, first of all, even and especially the sin of rejecting God's Christ. And secondly, the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
wonderful gifts. The day of Pentecost began at 9 a.m. with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the demonstration of the Spirit's presence and His power in worship and in the miraculous manifestation of the disciples speaking in other tongues that were not known to them, but were known to their hearers. But what cut to the heart? Let's not forget this. What cut to the hearts of those hearers, moved them to faith and repentance, was the preaching of the gospel. Some of you have people you're trying to reach for Christ. Try the gospel. Tell them the story of Jesus. Your story is interesting, but the one about Jesus has power. Share the gospel with those people. That's how God's Spirit works. He empowers weak people to communicate God's Word, to proclaim the gospel. And as they do that, people are moved to faith and repentance. There is no faith, there is no repentance apart from the gospel. And it's through that that God grows the church. The promise, the promise of forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter says here at the end, is for all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Joel, the prophet Joel had said, all who call upon the name of the Lord. So which is it? Is it we calling on the name of the Lord or the Lord calling him, calling us to himself? And the answer is both. Which comes first? God calling us to himself comes first. You can't call upon the name of the Lord unless and until God calls you to himself. In verse 40, Peter begins to wrap this up, and he says, Save yourselves from this crooked, corrupt generation. This crooked, corrupt generation. You look around the world today, does that fit? Does that description fit? Crooked, corrupt, dying. There's a choice to be made. There's a change of communities that's required. And that decision that needs to be made is to volitionally choose Jesus and in so doing to choose a transfer of citizenship from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus, to the new community of the redeemed people of God. A lot of us want to have it both ways. We want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And Peter says, forget that. Save yourselves. Choose Jesus. The promise of the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the, and the gift of eternal life and all the other gifts that come to God's people still stands still stands. The Bible talks about an hour of, of opportunity, a day of salvation, and the word that's, that's used there is a picture of a, a window that is open temporarily, a window in time, but will, will one day close. It's not an endless opening. And for us, the, the window closes when we die or when Jesus comes, whichever comes first. These days, I'm wondering if Jesus might just come first. But either way, at that moment, for those who are left behind, the window of opportunity is closed. So the promise still stands until the window of opportunity closes. So I want to encourage you today to to do two things. Save yourselves from this crooked, corrupt generation and trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. And extend extend the invitation to others around you. It's that, it's all of that that gives communion its significance. In the Scriptures in the New Testament, we, we read this. It is not the loaf that we eat, our participation in the body of Christ. It's not the loaf that we eat, our participation in the 
body of Christ. And that's reflective of the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he was betrayed, before he was arrested. He, he had a dinner with his disciples. And during that dinner, he took bread and he broke it and he distributed distributed it to them. And he said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Take it and eat it. That same scripture also says, is not the cup that we drink a participation in the blood of Christ? Rhetorical question. Jesus, that night, took the cup after dinner and he said, this cup is the new covenant. In other words, this is the ratification of the covenant in my blood, in my blood. Christians aren't cannibals, but we remember. We remember, don't we? And we celebrate that which purchased our salvation. He said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you today for the gift of your Son, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of the hope of eternal life. Lord, may we be among those who make the choice to transfer our citizenship from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom, the eternal permanent kingdom of your Son. Remind us that that's the real thing. That's the real deal. And Lord, may we be extenders of the promise, extenders of grace to those around us that they too may come to know the God who created them, who loves them, who redeems them by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.